If you could take your Bible and turn to the book of Titus, the book of Titus. This year I've been continuing in a Bible reading plan that takes me through all of the Bible in two years. Um, The idea is all of the Old Testament uh, once and then all of the New Testament basically as many times as I can get through it. Um, So uh, the plan is uh, Old Testament chapter, basically one chapter a day for two years. And then a New Testament chapter is each month there's a book that you just go through as many times as you can. And so that brought me to Titus uh, right now. It's actually Titus and Philemon that I'm um, just trying to read through as much as I can uh, throughout uh, March. And as I've been reading through it, there's just one little phrase that uh, jumped out at me that I'd like to focus on tonight. But to do that, we'll uh, zoom out a little bit, better understand what Titus is all about, and then spend some time focusing on uh, this phrase that the Lord brought to my attention. Uh, To begin with, I'd like for us to look at uh, the middle of the book, chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. We'll read this together and uh, pray and then get into it. Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. As you might guess from the hymns that we sang tonight, the phrase that I would like for us to focus on is verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we focus on this tonight. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, not only through creation, but in in a special way, in a specific way through your word. And I pray that you would, uh, by your spirit who breathed it out, would you um, help us to better understand and believe and apply uh, the truth from your word tonight. And uh, we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Titus is one of uh, three of Paul's letters collectively known as the pastoral epistles uh, because they're his only letters that are written specifically to pastors. First Timothy, second Timothy and Titus. Uh, Timothy was the pastor at the church at Ephesus and Titus was a pastor at the church at Crete. Crete, a little bit about the setting of this. I don't have any PowerPoint, so you'll actually have to pay attention um, and actually listen to the words, uh, at least more than usual. The setting of, of, of uh, this book that's written is uh, Crete. Now, if I was going to show you a picture of the Mediterranean Sea, Crete would be an island in the middle of that sea, a little bit uh, east East, what is east and west, and then turning it around a little bit east of the boot of Italy. So is an island that Titus was a pastor to a church on. Um, it was written probably around A.D. 65. 
this letter from Paul to Titus. We're not sure where Paul was when he was writing this. A lot of Paul's epistles, we know where he was, maybe under house arrest in Rome, different places. But this one's one of the few that we're not sure where he was when he wrote it. But we do know where Crete was. It was that island. Now, what are the people in Crete like? What were, what were the co-workers, if you will, of the, the Crete church people? What were the people that they rubbed shoulders with a lot like? We get a little hint of that down uh, in the first chapter. They weren't exactly the most truthful people. Verse 12 uh, Paul refers to what these people are like. Verse 12 of chapter 1, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And he says in verse 13, this testimony is true. Um, so it's almost like Paul is nicely using someone else's words to say it like it is, like the people really are. He's like one of the Cretans themselves self-described as um, some really nice people. The liars, they're evil beasts, they're lazy gluttons. So those are the kind of people that the people in the church at Crete, uh, that's what their, their neighbors are like. That's what the culture is like. Um, we know some friends that are on an island, and they uh, up in Maine. You probably know them, and they say it's kind of a den of filth, to use their own words. Maybe it's just the separation of the land. Whatever it is, they get up to no good very easily due to their own flesh, of course, similar to what we find on the island of Crete. When he wrote this, um, as I mentioned, it's A.D. 65. This is the second to last letter that Paul will write in the New Testament. The, the third to last, he, the, right before this book, he wrote First Timothy then he writes this book to Titus, and then after this, he writes um, 2 Timothy. So it's just two to three years later that he writes 2 Timothy in chapter 4, familiar words, but, but notice the kind of Paul that we're hearing from. Um, in, in 2 Timothy 4, a few years later after he writes this, he's, Paul says, The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so this is nearing the end of Paul's life. So perhaps verse 13 of chapter 2 is, is almost as, as much as ever on Paul's mind, waiting for the, the appearing of, of Christ. So that's a little bit of the setting. Who are the people like? What is Paul like at this time in his life? Um, the purpose of the book the purpose of the book of Titus, we actually find in verse 1. In a nutshell, we'll just read it. Paul, uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. In a nutshell, those last five words are the point of Titus. Truth which accords with with godliness. That's really the book in a nutshell. And uh, what I'd like to do is trace for a second this concept of living out truth through the book. In chapter six, in chapter one, verse 16, it, this is like the opposite of this. 
He, he says, these false teachers, which we'll get to in a little bit, in verse 16 of chapter 1, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Chapter 2, verse 1, almost the same phrase as we find in one one. Chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You'd almost expect then for Paul to go into this, okay, let me tell you about the healthy doctrine. Let me tell you about this sound doctrine. That's not really what he said, though, in verse 1. He said, teach what accords with, what has to do with, what follows from the sound doctrine, the natural outgrowth of healthy doctrine. And then he he continues on in chapter 2 to give them a bunch of the fleshing out of that healthy doctrine in in practical, everyday living kinds of things. Truth in practice. Paul's telling Titus, healthy doctrine is necessary. And so are the good works that flow from the healthy doctrine. It's interesting, there's a bunch of mentions of good works throughout these three pastoral epistles. Probably most significantly here in Titus. What we read... Uh, just a little bit ago, uh, to open with verses 11 through 14, you could say are really the heart of the book. Christians, true Christians, are changed people. Chapter 2, verse 7, uh, pa- uh, Paul tells Titus, show yourself in all respects to me a model, to these young men in, in context, of good works. Chapter 14, which we already read earlier, Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every, there it is again, good work. A few verses later, verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you, Titus, to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. The other theme that you find throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus is a contrast with good works. And in particular, in this book, in Titus, closely connected to good works is something that will thwart good works. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. Titus 1 and verse 14. He says, uh, we'll back up in verse 13, Therefore rebuke them, these, these Cretan false teachers, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And then a few verses later in verse 16, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. In chapter 2, verse 14, when, when Paul mentions being zealous for good works, it's probably that he's contrasting that with, with the Cretans in, in verse 16 of chapter 1 who are unfit for any good work. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Remember, we're, we're being reminded by Paul to be submissive, to be ready for every good work. Chapter 3, verse 2 
to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. A few verses later, chapter 3, verse 8, yes, we're devoting ourselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Verse 9, but the contrast with good works, foolish controversies. Avoid those genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. In other words, Paul is saying that if if people are devoting themselves to truly good works, they're going to be less likely to be stirring up division and argument about things that don't matter. And the converse is also true. If people are busy arguing about things that don't matter, they're not devoting themselves to truly good works. Argument about things that don't truly matter, dissensions, is something that just kind of keeps on jumping off the page as you read the pastoral epistles. Right doctrine leads to truly good works, which on that island will be a contrast of a lifestyle that will stick out like a sore thumb if people say they believe one thing and they actually live out that one thing. And so one writer has said this about the point of the book of Titus. Titus is an evangelistic letter whose ultimate purpose was to prepare the church for more effective witness to unbelievers on Crete. Believers that are, that are fighting amongst, amongst themselves and getting into quarreling and divisions They're shooting themselves in the foot. They're showing that they don't apparently truly believe what they say they believe. They're not living out what accords with sound doctrine. As far as the outline of the book, it's a typical Pauline letter in terms of an introduction and a closing. But let's let's just walk through this. If you have a, a, a hard copy Bible, you're looking at it and it's probably the whole book. Um, in one fell swoop, just these three small chapters. The first couple of verses through verse 4 of the book is like an introduction. And then he talks about true teachers, if we want to call them that, qualifications for elders. The ESV has an outline there, verse 5 through 9. But then he contrasts them with false teachers, verse 10 through 16. And, and he, has, uh, he, he doesn't mince words when he's talking about these false teachers that are much like the Cretans that live on this island. And then he gets back to, okay, Titus, you need to teach your people what true Christians live like. So he talks about true Christians in chapter 2 all the way down through verse 8 of chapter 3. But he can't leave. He, he's got to get back to the false teachers again in chapter 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies. Uh, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, he, he's wanting them to leave them with this, this concept. Don't tolerate division. After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And then he closes out his letter. That's just a brief look at the outline what I want to look at, though, this, this evening is, as I mentioned, chapter 2 and verse 13. I would say it's in the middle of the heart of this letter, 
about the grace of God appearing and bringing salvation to everyone, then it, and it teaches us to live a different life. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions that you see out your window every day, Cretan church, and, and, and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age, this right now. But we're looking ahead to something. In the middle of the right now, you are to be, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is something that he hints at at the beginning and at the end of his letter. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Yes, truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. He's reminding of this, this eternal life that true believers have a yearning for, have a hope, a confident expectation of. And he also mentions it near the end of the book, chapter 3 and verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's almost like he's bookending his book this way and right smack dab in the middle, you need to be living a good works kind of changed life. But what's motivating that is where you're truly looking. You're looking for beyond this life. Waiting for. What does that mean in verse 13 when Paul of, of chapter 2 when he says we're waiting for this thing? There's waiting and, and then there's waiting. If you've ever waited at the DMV, that is a certain kind of waiting. When will this ever be done? I'm sitting here waiting for something that I'm not even looking forward to. I just need to get this issue done. I just need this person to look at this form that I filled out. Unless you're waiting maybe to receive your driver license. Then there may be, maybe there's an anticipation there. But otherwise, all other DMV waiting is, I just need to get this over with. There's nothing to look forward to. This is like an entire waste of my life right now here in the DMV. But then there's also another kind of waiting. Maybe for a child, a waiting for dad to come home because he said, we're going to do this thing when I get home. There's an adventure to come. There's a thing we're going to do. Just dad himself is just something to look forward to. I don't know when that changes, but um, think of a, a young child anticipating their dad coming home. There's an eager anticipation. And really, that's what we find in this sense of the word in verse 13. There's a looking forward to. Reading from one commentary, wait can describe, describe a posture not of passivity in the face of a fickle future. I just need to get this over with and we'll see what happens. And it's not all that exciting to look forward to. But of a dogged confidence in God and his sure promises, however remote they may seem at times. This is an eager anticipation. This is a confidence that is, is described here. And what is it that we're waiting for? Our blessed hope. The, and uh, there's a couple of different senses of the idea of being blessed. You could have something that is blessed because there's good circumstances that I've experienced in my life. Oh, I just feel so blessed. Um, and then there's also a sense where it's like you, you turn up the volume on it and actually you have a divine intervention because there's someone that has been involved, God, in doing the specific blessing. 
And that's what we have here. This is a divinely inspired blessing, divinely favored hope that we have because God's the one specifically that has given us this as Christians. The hope, it's the looking forward to something. I have hope. There's a couple of different options about this as well. There's, okay, I am hoping in something. I'm hoping something's going to happen. We'll see what happens. I hope my team wins this game. We don't know how it's going to turn out, but I really hope it. There's also a hope that is the sense of the foundation of hope. But then here in this verse, there's the sense the hope is the object of hope. That for which one hopes. So we as Christians are yearning, we're waiting for this hope. We're eagerly anticipating the object of our God-given hope. And, and Paul shows us exactly what that is. What is this hope? It's not a second thing, like we're waiting for blessed hope, and we're also waiting for the appearing of the glory, but rather we're waiting for the blessed hope, which is the appearing, is really the sense of this. It's, he's specifying what the hope is. This is the thing that we as Christians are to be eagerly anticipating. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul's just mentioned that word, hasn't he? The, the appearing. Up in verse 11, something else has already appeared. It's almost like a down payment of another appearing that's going to happen. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It's the grace of God through Christ which brought salvation. Christ appeared once, and he brought salvation with him. But Christians are waiting for another appearing of Christ. Another appearing that will be the final appearing. It, it's really this tension for Christians of the already, but not yet. Our salvation has already been secured. Christ has paid for sin. He's the propitiation for sin in taking on the wrath of God that you and I deserved on the cross. Payment in full has been made, First John two nine for uh, uh, two one, and then that was that was uh, shown to be the case when God vindicated that when He raised Him from the dead. There's an alreadyness about our salvation, but there's also a not yetness about our salvation. There's a second appearing of Christ yet to happen. The next time that we will see Christ. That will be the last time we will ever have to not see him. We will always see him again, forever, the next time you see Christ. You will never not be with him once you see him next. That is the glory. That, that is the hope that Paul is laying out for us. But in Paul's second mention of appearing, he draws attention to a new aspect of the glory of Christ. The, the, the appearance of Christ, and that is the appearing not of Christ, though that, that's implied, that's assumed, but what does he say? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of Christ. Has Christ's glory ever been revealed to mankind before this? Remember 
when he did that to just a few people, just a few disciples, not even all the disciples. Remember at the transfiguration, the transfiguration displayed Christ's glory in, in some ways, but then also later on when Christ was resurrected and he showed himself that in a sense, that was a glorified body of Christ, a foretaste of what our bodies will perhaps be like in the eternal state. His resurrected body, Christ's glory was revealed. Christ's glory was revealed at the transfiguration. Mark's gospel, we don't have to take the time to turn there, but Mark's gospel says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as, on, as no one on earth could bleach them. You can't get any more pure and amazing and radiant than Christ was when he revealed himself to Peter, James, and John along with their showing with him, Moses and Elijah. Luke, uh, his account of the transfiguration says that the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Peter, James, and John were terrified, the Bible says, at seeing that display of Christ's glory. As incredible as the transfiguration was in pulling back the curtain for just a few people that we all also got to see through the text, Christ's deity was affirmed by God, the Father, as was, was Christ's authority. God says, hear him. But Christ's deity and his authority wasn't fully acted upon. There's glory of Christ that hadn't yet been displayed even at the transfiguration. This appearing of the glory of Christ here in Titus 2.13 is one that is greater than the transfiguration displayed before, before Peter, James, and John. Christ's deity was affirmed. Remember when, when Peter just, he does what he usually does. He just opens his mouth and he has this idea and, Christ, and, and the father in the voice of the clouds says, this is the only one you are to be paying attention to. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Christ's deity is displayed magnificently at the transfiguration. But it wasn't fully shown. At the final appearing of Christ, for which we are waiting, his authority will be fully enacted. He will, he will vanquish all of his foes. His power will be fully displayed. Justice will actually be meted out fully and finally. His followers, 1 John 3 and verse 2, that says, His followers, you and I, will be like Christ because we shall see him as he is. The final appearing of Christ, his glory will be displayed in an unprecedented way. And that's what you and I as believers, Paul reminds us, are to be waiting for, expectant, hopeful, anticipating, looking forward to. First Timothy 4 and verse 2, Paul also refers to this. Paul tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing... And his kingdom. First Timothy 6 and verse 14, we're to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
When Paul in 2 Timothy 2, verse 7 and 8 says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the faith, I have, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. He then says in verse 8, Henceforth, there's laid up for me something. There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, who have eagerly looked forward to and longed for. So in this sense, it seems not to be referring to the, the rapture of Christ when we will meet the Lord in the air, those who are alive and remain, as we believe Scripture to show. But rather the second and the final coming of Christ to earth in the way that Paul is also using this word appearing in other of his letters. So, this hope that we see in verse 13 is, as one writer put it, the hope that is above all other hopes. It's, it's, it's the greatest and best hope that's possible for a human being that has ever existed. Most specifically for those that are in Christ. There's nothing more you could ever look forward to that would be more worth looking forward to than what Paul mentions here in verse 13. I, th I think because of the fact that the fall has messed with our view of reality, because we live in a sin-cursed world, that affects, that, that, that uh, messes with um, our evaluation of what we most look forward to. But when we're thinking most clearly, when we're thinking most biblically, the greatest thing that anyone, much less one who is in Christ, could ever hope for and yearn for it's the appearing of Christ and seeing him for who he is. The hope that is above all other hopes. And then he finishes out his phrase, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Some people have thought maybe this is, you know, is this two different persons of the Godhead being referred to? Our great God, the, as in probably God the Father, and also God the Son. There, there's two possible renderings of this. You could, you could word it as it's translated in our uh, English Standard Version of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Or, um, I believe the authorized version, the, the King James Version, renders it of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. But in that second option, um, it seems as if there's an added article that's making it kind of unclear, is there the great God and there's the our Savior Jesus Christ? Well, the article has actually been added in that translation. The underlying Greek and also its rules for translation essentially tells us that Jesus Christ is the thing, is the, the object here that, the, that, that which precedes it is referring to. Jesus Christ is the great God, and Jesus Christ is our Savior. And that seems to be the clearest understanding of how this works, much less the, the idea that the appearing of the glory of God the Father, no man has seen the Father. No man can look on the Father and live. So it has to be that these are both referring to Christ himself. But don't miss the point. We're, we're focusing on who Christ is. He's, number one, our great God. 
And, and when you see the word great, our tendency is to think in terms of, you know, the superlative thing, great, greater, greatest. There are, are some that are great and then the others are less great than this. Well, that's not really the sense here. The sense is rather that there, are, there is one who is great and then all others are not great. The church father Chrysostom said it this way, when he says great with respect to God, he says it not comparatively, but absolutely, after whom no one is great. Really the idea of being holy, set apart. No one, you, you can't say anyone is great if you're going to also say that Christ is great in this sense. The incomparable God, that's who Christ is. And he's also what? Our great God and he is our Savior. He's the one who alone is great and he's the one who alone saves. He's the one who alone saves. This is the hope of a true believer. A number of years ago, I think it's about six years ago now, there was um, in uh, 2018, uh, in June and July, there was a soccer team. Do you remember the soccer team in Thailand? It made the news. That's all that it was, was on the news. There, there was a, a boys' soccer team and their coach, boys as in ages 11 through 16, their 25-year-old coach, they went as they typically did, uh, exploring in a cave. And shortly after they began their exploration, an, uh, a, a, a torrential downpour began. And in that region, that meant floods would rise. Well, eventually, uh, the flood blocked their exit of the cave. And so they were trapped two and a half miles into the labyrinth of the cave. And they were trying to figure out how to pump out the water and drain it on one side of the mountain. And, and this days were going on end. And, and they knew they were trapped in there somewhere and they couldn't get to them. And, and there was soon, uh, in mid-July, there was soon to be another expected flooding that would happen that would basically seal off the possibility of ever rescuing them. Well, a Herculean effort was undertaken to rescue them. And, and this is two and a half miles of cave, most of which is uh, diving, most of which is underwater. And if you want to look this up or, or watch the movie, I won't spare, I, I won't give you all the details, but miraculously, they were all of them rescued. Seeming you know, be, be beyond all odds, all 13 of those boys, and the, including their coach, was rescued. And, and e there was even one uh, Navy SEAL, in, a Thailand Navy SEAL, that was even killed in the attempts to do this. What the, what the divers were doing was at the edge of their limits of human possibility. So, can you imagine when the boys and the, and, and the soccer coach come to after being on the edge of death, two and a half miles trapped in a cave where they're losing their oxygen, can you imagine what they feel like when they one day get to meet those that risk their lives to save them? You, you, you can't imagine. They were all just going to die and later be discovered. Can you imagine the bond? You've probably seen other stories. You know, someone's reunited with the person that saved them. 
that's minuscule in comparison to what we will one day get to experience when we see Christ. The one who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. The one who gave us the rescue we didn't even know we needed, but was our only hope. The one without whom we would be helplessly lost. The one that we have countlessly sinned against. Over and over have we sinned against our Christ, haven't we? Over and over again, we have been forgiven by Christ. We've been cleansed from all unrighteousness. The one who has forgiven us those times. Can you imagine the, the reunion? It's not really a reunion in the sense that we have never seen him face to face. But we will. We will see our Savior face to face. A lot of times when we think about heaven, it's natural and it's right and good to think about the loved ones that we have lost, that we will get to see again and never be separated from again. But I dare say that once we have seen our Savior, that the the seeing of him will outshine anybody else that we could long to see again. Because that's how good Christ is. That's how wonderful our Savior is. And that is the hope that is to be set before us. That's the hope in verse 13 13, that we are to be longing for. How how do we help ourselves think this way, though? Because, again, we're, we're in this fallen world. We're busy. We have stuff in our lives. We have all sorts of things that we're focusing on, and it, and it tends to cloud our view of reality. C.S. Lewis, when he writes uh, in his Chronicles of Narnia, he, he uses uh, his, his, his allegories and his pictures to, to show these, I, I think it's the Pevensey children. When they're with Aslan, when they're finally with Christ, in, in terms of how C.S. Lewis is picturing it, they think one they, they they think distantly in the fogginess of their minds to England where they grew up. And it's almost like, oh yeah, that was a place, wasn't it? And I think what C. S. Lewis is rightly portraying for us is that once we're with Christ forever, this life will be such a shadow, like, oh, did we really do that? Did we really think that that was like good and like the ideal thing? because of how real and good and perfect and best our next life with Christ will be. And so it's this life that actually is not as real as the next one. And so I think it's helpful for us to follow Paul's exhortation to be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. How do we help ourselves to think in terms of reality and think, think in terms of the Hebrews 11 kind of living, all those people that died never having received the promises yet, how do we live that way? Number one, we've got to live that way by being in the only word that we have that God has given us. That's where reality is found in God's unchanging word. It's, I would I encourage you to also listen to Christian music that reminds you of the next life that gives you reminders of the hope. When we think about the next life, when we think about seeing Christ in person, that is intended to show us how important or not important we should be holding the things here on earth. 
this light momentary affliction, Paul says, which is interesting for Paul to say, who is beaten kind of regularly for his connection with Christ. He says it's a light momentary affliction. Our 80 years in this life, more or less, is just a blip on the screen, this vapor of a life. Listen to Christian music that points you to God and not only points you to God, but points you to the next life where all rights, all wrongs will be made right. Pastor Matt was talking this morning about certain things that in this life just won't ever be right. There are wrongs done to people that could never be matched in in, in having vengeance repaid for them. Mass shootings, horrible sins against individuals, horrible sins against humanity. This side of life, this side of eternity, you, can't, you couldn't ever make that right. Some lives are just horrible and they won't ever be able to be better until the eternal state, until the glorious appearing, the glory of our great God and Savior returns. Then rights will actually fully be complete. Wrongs will be completely made right. We hope in this when we hope in the appearing of Christ. So, in context of this book, if our minds in this present age that we are living on, living in, that Cretan island that that church was situated on, that present age, for them to live lives of good works that fleshed out the, the truth that they believed, a motivation for that, a primary motivation, is looking ahead to the next life when we will get to see Christ himself. Are we as believers waiting, yearning, hoping for, confident in Christ's return? That's a hope that's blessed. That's a hope that we are to be intended, intently focusing on. We need God's grace to help us to think this way and to live this way. Because if we are thinking this way, we will in fact live this way and live distinct before our unsaved friends our neighbors, it'll be obvious that we don't have a loose hold on this life because we're living for the next one. May we as believers here in our area, in our Crete, would we live looking toward the next life, confident of getting to see Christ's glory revealed fully and finally. Let's pray.